This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has made clear it wants to maximize union participation throughout the American workforce, both public and private. Last month, it took new steps meant to encourage it within the federal workforce specifically. Among other steps, the new guidelines tell agencies they should inform new hires about whether their new job is represented by a union and which one it is. Matt Biggs is president of the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. He joins us now to talk more about what the new guidelines mean for federal labor unions. And Matt, I think the place I want to start with this is... Tell me exactly what what the value of this new announcement from Vice President Harris and Secretary Walsh is, because it, it's difficult from the outside to tell whether it, the, the value is mainly in messaging, just communicating to the workforce that union representation is good, or there are specific things in the guidelines that they laid out that will actually make a meaningful change in the onboarding process, because that's where most of this is focused, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the it, I guess it's important to point out the, the April executive order on worker organizing, I mean, it, it pertains to um, all sectors of the workforce, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, it's aimed at growing union membership in the public sector, the federal sector, and the private sector. Um, but it also made a point to, to, uh, to say that federal agencies, the federal government, should lead by example. Um, and the importance of it is, is the following. Um, uh, you know, and, and President Biden, to his credit, he understands this. He's understood this for for many, many years. A strong middle class um, is directly linked to a strong uh, a strong union membership uh, overall in this country. Um, the middle class grows when unions grow and union membership grows, and I think that's the point of the executive order. With with a growing union membership in this country, you will also have a growing and strong middle class. That means better wages, better benefits, better working conditions, these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the, you know, Secretary Walsh and Vice President Harris, um, they led with their recommendations uh, to President Biden, uh, their report to President Biden with the federal sector. So, uh, which obviously is, is the easiest sector for them to impact immediately, uh, given that, the, you know, the President of the United States is essentially the boss of all federal employees. So, so I, I think that's that's the important link here is that uh, you know the the more union members you have in this country, the more union density in all sectors, including the federal sector, uh, the stronger you have, the stronger your middle class is. As to these specific guidelines, that the, at least the language that OPM used is that, for example, agencies should include in their job opportunity announcements whether it's a union position if they're not already doing so. And again, if they're not already doing so, identify the union. A, a lot of those caveats in the language, and that's really my question, are, are as far as the agencies that you're involved in bargaining with and that you have representation over, are these sorts of things that are already kind of common practice that are just now being codified, or are these real changes? They're, they're real changes in certain agencies. Uh, you know, for example, the Social Security Administration, uh, that, that, that has, has been an anti-union uh, agency, um, and it, it goes all the way back to to, uh, to President Bush. Um, but they, they were anti-union all through the Obama administration, and then and then President Trump, of course, who who himself uh, you know wanted to just bust unions all throughout the federal sector. But so Social Security, it's me, it's meaningful um, that they have to they have to uh, change the uh, change the way they deal with their unions and with uh, their workers, right? They have to notify them whether they're in a bargaining unit or not. They have to notify them 
uh, give them the contact information, for example, for the unions. So, so Social Security, Executive Office of Immigration Review, that's another one uh, that just literally tried to bust our union. Um, they didn't even go through the executive order. They just just declared everybody as a supervisor and just tried to bust the union. But so for those agencies, it's meaningful. Um, for example, NAVC, uh, that that you know uh, where we have all we we represent workers at all four of the Navy uh, public shipyards. NAVC, to their credit. Uh, they understand uh, the benefit of having a partnership and working hand in hand with their union. So, so those kind of things were already occurring there to their credit, and and continued for for the most part throughout the uh, throughout the Trump administration. So, it is meaningful uh, in certain agencies like Social Security, uh, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, um, and then in other places, it it just reinforces uh, the good work that that uh, that management and the unions are doing together. As you pointed out, you know, a lot of variability in terms of how union friendly the federal government is, depending on who the president is at any given time. These things could hypothetically all be reversed by a new administration. Are are these changes sufficiently important that Congress ought to look at potentially putting at least some of them in statute? Yeah, ideally that would be the case, right? I mean, um, you know, as a labor union, um, you know, we we would prefer that these, you know, these kind of uh, these kind of measures would be uh, put into law, you know, passed passed through each, you know, through the House, through the Senate, and signed into law, um, because you know, as as we've seen with the, with the past Trump administration. Um, you know, we we could get an anti-labor president, and and they could just reverse these with a stroke of a pen, um, and not only do that, uh, put in place unilaterally executive orders uh, that literally are are whose intent is to destroy unions in the federal sector. So yeah, ideally we would want this in, in law, um, but given the current makeup of the Congress, I mean, you still need 60 votes in the Senate to get anything done. Um, you know, how practical is that? It's not real practical. I mean, we do have a uh, chairman of the uh, the committee that oversees uh, federal the federal workforce she's very pro labor as she should be and we give her credit for that and the same in the senate uh, but the problem is you know you can get things through the house there are there are even labor friendly republicans in the house that would vote for, for things like that not only vote for them co-sponsor them uh, but you can't get it through the senate so it's it's really not practical at this point unfortunately and getting back to your point about the government leading by example as an employer again whether the government is hostile or friendly to unions depends almost entirely on who the president is at any given time. I, I'm just curious whether that, you know, that that union friendly attitude translates very well into the private sector, because my sense is there's, if not outright hostility between labor and management on the private side, at least usually some constructive tension, let's say. I mean, I mean, are you ever going to have a situation where the federal government is going to be able to influence, again, by example, um, a private sector employer to do these sorts of union-friendly things without forcing them to. Well, you know, here again, you know, th- there is legislation. I mean, the private sector is quite different than the, than the than the public sector and the federal sector when it comes to to unions, particularly organizing. But there there is legislation uh, that that did pass the House. Um, uh, it's called the Pro Act, uh, Protecting the Right to Organize Act, that will put in place into law. Uh, measures that will level the playing field uh, between workers and employers in the private sector. Um, you know, we, we our biggest local, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, is a, is a local that represents upwards of 20,000 Boeing workers. And uh, you know, it's it's difficult as a union when you go up against a multi-billion-dollar uh, corporation like Boeing. They have a lot of resources, and uh, they use them 
um, to to impact our you know negotiations and even our organizing drives. We got an organizing drive going on in Southern California, and Boeing is actively spending uh, uh, tons and tons of money to bust that bust that organizing drive. But um, it's 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 a it's a it's a lot different. Um, in order to impact the federal the, the private sector, you, you we would need to pass uh, legislation like the PRO Act, um, which President Biden supports as, as well. And last thing, Matt, in, in this guidance from OPM, they make quite clear that there are other steps that they plan on taking in the future to kind of further the president's pro-union agenda. What sorts of things would you be urging the administration to do beyond the steps that they uh, that they rolled out last month? Well, you know, we did give them a set of recommendations, um, and they, they, they asked all the unions for, for some of their input, you know, on um, – on, um, what recommendations they should present to President Biden, and one of them we would like to see is putting back in place, uh, you know, the partnership uh, executive order um, that uh, President Clinton had in place, and then President Obama. Um, we we would like to see that 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 sets a tone all throughout the federal government. You know, like like I said, you know, at uh, at NAVC and at DOD, you know, unions are part of the part of the culture there. I mean, unions are part of getting the work done efficiently uh, and effectively. You know, for our fighting uh, women and men. Uh, but that's not the case in all all agencies. So we we do think we need a uh, an executive order put in place to reestablish the, the the partnerships all throughout the uh, the federal government. Um, I know President Obama, um, if I'm remembering correctly, when he became president, it wasn't until December that he uh, his administration put forward the executive order on partnerships. So you know if if uh, you know if by the end of the year something like that could come out of the administration and we could get that rolling we think that'd be a good thing that's matt biggs the newly elected president of the international federation of professional and technical engineers you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com/federaldrive hello and welcome to the lessons in leadership podcast i am your host shane canfield ceo of wepa today i'm thrilled to be joined by vice admiral cutler dawson cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm. I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? 
my style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, 
um, from C to C-suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.